Gimme Shelter is supported by the James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. You can say right. Dylan. He can say Leah. <laughs> yeah. Say it. Say it. Gag. There you Gag. go. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome everyone to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Manuela Tobias, housing reporter for CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon, and I write about housing for the Los Angeles Times. And today, Wednesday, March 16th, 2022, we are discussing how in the next seven months, basically all of Southern California is going to have to make room for a lot more housing. Under new state laws, which are promised to be very, very, very strict, most cities in Imperial, Los Angeles... Orange, Riverside, San Bernardino, and Ventura counties will have to rezone all the land under their control by mid-October for new homes. In the city of LA alone, it has to carve out enough land for more than a quarter million new homes by that time. That is a lot. We'll be talking about why this is the case, whether it's even possible, if the state may make changes between now and then. And we'll be having yet another Gimme Shelter existential conversation about whether what's going on is actually meaningful in solving California's housing crisis. We've been getting so deep here recently. We really have. And to get deep with us once again, we brought on the perfect guest. Who is Iliam? We have Kome Ajise, the head of the Southern California Association of Governments, which is the umbrella group in charge of housing planning in the six counties we discussed at the top here. Kome has been dealing with this housing planning process for a few years now, and he'll have some insights on what's going on. But first, we have the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastry, making its triumphant return. It is... The Avocado of the Fortnite. Yes, our look at the most extravagant, zany, outlandish story in California housing over the last couple of weeks. For the last couple episodes, we've dedicated the entire episode to the avocado. We had mountain lion habitats and mm-hmm. single right. family home zoning, uh, environmental laws calling college students pollution. But we are bringing back our segment in a big way this fortnight. Where are we going, Liam? Still going to be in Los Angeles, but this time in Bel Air, a ritzy enclave in the foothills of the Santa Monica Mountains. In other words, the stomping grounds of the Fresh Prince. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Indeed. So, Manuela, what's happening over there? So this is where one of the biggest real estate transactions in recent California housing took place. Richard Sagian, the owner of Fashion Nova, a fast fashion label, bought LA's biggest and most extravagant mega mansion, fittingly called The One. Oh, okay. And how much did he pay for The One? So the house was sold at auction for $126 million, which (laughs) rose to $141 million with auction fees. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fast fashion. It is. And while definitely the most expensive house sold at auction, it didn't break the record for most expensive house set last October at $177 million for a different mansion in Malibu. And true to Fashion Nova prices, it sold for much less than what it was actually worth. I see. And, you know, just some Fashion Nova context here, which uh, thank you for providing me to delineate, Manuela. Yes. So the brand uh, does not have the rosiest reputation overall. There are some allegations of wage theft by its suppliers. And uh, recently, 
a $4.2 million settlement relating to blocked negative reviews of Fashion Nova products on its website. I know a lot about this brand because uh, <laughs> Cardi B is one of its influencers, so mm, I pay okay. attention. All right. So the house was originally listed for $295 million and once marketed for $500 million, as your colleagues Lawrence Darmiento and Jack Fleming have reported. The reason for the significant markdown was developer Niall Niami, who it turns out is quite the Hollywood scenester himself, was forced to put it into bankruptcy after the home's limited liability company defaulted on $106 million in construction loans. Clearly seems to be a lot going on with the one. So I remember reading when Naomi defaulted on the debt and his plan to make up the money was to turn this mansion, mega mansion, into an event space with boxing matches and concerts with holograms featured. Let me tell you about the mega mansion. Yes. The one has 21 bedrooms. Okay. And 42 full bathrooms. That's an interesting ratio. But it okay. is, All right? Right? Yes. right? Uh-huh. It's like uh-huh. two, two bath, bath, one, one bed. bed. <laughs> right, I'm, right. I'm down for that. Six elevators, multiple moats, pools, hot tubs, full nightclub. My favorite part of the nightclub is that um, it has these outdoor fire pits surrounded by moats. I obviously watched the full 30-minute YouTube video tour of the house to prepare. Wow. So I'm very impressed about your dedication (laughs) to this avocado. As you always say, Liam, I'm a great reporter myself too. So (laughs) there's also a private theater, a bowling alley, a billiard room, a candy room, salon and spa, a tennis court, and a track that runs along the moat along the perimeter of the house, which of course overlooks the city of LA. Wow. Sounds like a lot of moats. As your colleagues wrote in this story, the one may become a marketing tool for Fashion Nova, serving as the backdrop for its influencers. There's not just Cardi B, there's also Kylie Jenner and others. So Liam, I have a question for you. What is the first thing you would do if you purchased the one? Well, I think obviously I would fill the moats with sharks with freaking laser beams. (laughs) Do you even know what I'm talking about? Is it like an Austin Powers thing? Yes, yes. Oh, it is? Okay, wow. I was really sure whether I was going to date myself. That movie did not hold up well with some of the jokes, but (laughs) laser-beamed-headed sharks, I think, is one thing that does. So, yeah, I actually was thinking about that recently because I watched Pam and Tommy, and they talk about how Pamela Anderson was actually going to be in that movie. Ended up not because of the whole drama. But anyways, let's get into the meat of our episode and the impending rezoning revival in Southern California. Liam, where should we start? Well, Manuela, unfortunately, we need to start with deep within the bowels of some of the worst acronyms in California. Here we go. (laughs) But fortunately or unfortunately, as it were, some of these acronyms may sound familiar to longtime Gimme Shelter listeners. So why is this rezoning push actually happening? It's due to a state law or process known as the Regional Housing Needs Assessment, or here's the acronym RENA. That is a bad one. To me, it kind of sounds like renal failure, which isn't that far off. You were the one that brought up bowels, so trying to keep okay. it <laughs> keep to the theme. theme. Also, shout out to Rena. That's my best friend's mom. Hope she's a listener. <laughs> she okay. definitely is not. All right. So every eight years under this Rena law, Rena process, cities across California need to plan to set aside enough land for developers to build homes for people at varying income levels. The figures are determined by the state and take into account projected population growth and other factors like housing overcrowding, for instance, that indicate a need for more homes. 
Importantly, this process, which also is known formally as the housing element, does not require local governments to build or approve new housing. Instead, it just mandates that they must zone sufficient land for the state's housing goals. So where did this law come from and has it worked? Well, I guess if it did, we wouldn't be having this podcast called the California Housing Crisis Podcast. Exactly. So the law has been around for more than 50 years. And as you just implied, really hasn't worked. You know, cities have often skirted the process over the years, designating properties like median strips in the middle of roads for more housing and things like that. So, of course, homes don't get built in those places. And up until recently, there's been very little consequence for not following the rules. A few years ago now, you know, I wrote a big story on this that I encourage people who are interested in more of the background to take a look at. One of the Bay Area councilmen I quoted in that story about this process called it, quote, an elaborate shell game. That's really no good. Okay, but why is this law causing drama all of a sudden if it really hasn't worked? Yeah, so in the past few years, the state legislators and governors, both the former governor Jerry Brown and the current governor Gavin Newsom, have implemented new laws and policies that aim to give this process more teeth. Cities that are behind on permitting enough new homes to meet the state goals have to waive local rules and more quickly approve some low-income housing. The number of new homes that have to be planned for, now 2.5 million statewide by 2030, has been greatly boosted. That 2.5 million home figure is double what it was in the last eight-year cycle. And there are some increased penalties for cities who don't follow the rules. I see. So what's now happening in Southern California? Okay, so unfortunately, this brings us to our other awful acronym. So because it be a lot of work to try to evaluate housing plans from every city in California at the same time. The state has divided up timelines in this process by region. Right now, it's cities in Southern California's turn for when, I guess, the rubber meets the road or, you know, the hammer meets the nail, if you want to use that uh, housing metaphor. Thank you. Thank you. I know your dad likes that joke. So the aforementioned Southern California Association of Governments covers all the counties from Ventura down to the border with the exception of San Diego, 19 million people. This covers roughly half the state's population. And yes, the Southern California Association of Governments is known as SCAG. So- Okay, I didn't really have an immediate reaction to this term. I just like that you can read it as opposed to sort of guessing how to pronounce it. But upon further research, I learned that this is slang for heroin and a derogatory term for women that was used back in the day. So I'm signing me up for the rename campaign. Well, why I, do I you really, hate this? I really just am so impressed by your research dedication for this episode. So anyway, I think skag is bad. I think it just is horrible to you say. You just think it um, sounds bad. Okay. I, oh yes, it sounds bad. So, okay. So what happens in this process is that the state gives skag housing numbers that the entire region has to zone for. And then skag with many guidelines hashes out what individual cities get, what numbers. And so now what's happening is all the cities themselves have to take the numbers they got and see how many homes they may need to rezone for and amid a host of other requirements to get a compliant housing plan. Okay, so why is LA now facing a deadline to rezone the entire city within a few months? It sounds like this is a multi-year process. It is. But remember the new penalties that we discussed for cities who didn't comply with the law? Well, LA fell into the penalty zone, if you will, last month. And as a result, they have to do all the rezoning their plan calls for within one year of when the plan was originally due. So that means by October of this year. Had the state found LA's initial plan to be in compliance with the law, they would have had three years to do the rezoning instead. Right. And that year is now down to seven months. So why? What did LA do wrong? Right. So here's the, or rather a rub here. Even the state says like LA doesn't have to do that much to get right under the law. 
The city embarked on what was, by all accounts, a pretty thorough process to complete its housing plan. Experts widely praised city leaders for identifying lots of realistic sites for housing construction, a responsibility that, as we've said, a lot of other cities have shirked. The city's plan even intends to reverse some historic patterns of development and rezone wealthier, lower-density communities, such as those on the west side in the San Fernando Valley, for more affordable housing. So this all sounds like gold star material. What did they do wrong? So the state says the city did not fully comply with another new part of this housing planning process, added requirements to promote fair housing. The city didn't, for instance, provide enough detail in its plan for how it intends to prove parks or make other investments in lower income neighborhoods or set out enough metrics for how it would judge whether it met fair housing goals to better integrate LA's neighborhoods. That thing everyone is so good at. So within everything they've done, though, this sounds like a minor-ish part of the assignment, but the consequences are pretty bad. Yeah, and the penalties for not really meeting this initial deadline are not really possible to meet. The rezoning effort, which again calls for making space for 255,000 new homes, requires an analysis under the California Environmental Quality Act, or CEQA, and we all know how onerous that process may be, let alone how fraught that is with litigation. If you don't, make sure to listen to our previous episode about UC Berkeley's enrollment getting caught up in a CEQA lawsuit. Yeah, and politically, it's just not going to happen either. I mean, LA has a wide open mayoral election, multiple city council elections that will be decided in November. And the idea that this entire city is going to be rezoned while all that is going on is no. And in fact, even the state admits this isn't going to happen. You know, when I did a story on this issue recently, the head of the state housing department, Gustavo Velasquez, told me, Los Angeles, quote, is the most densely populated city in the state. It's a lot of work. To be perfectly honest, I don't know how anybody could think that the rezoning could be done between now and October. Okay, then. So more practically, what happens if they don't do the rezoning? So here's where we start getting into a little bit more of the rub. So cities that don't have compliant housing plans miss out on a lot of state affordable housing funding. This is actually a big deal, especially in LA, which relies on this money a whole lot to help build low-income and homeless housing to deal with its, of course, massive affordability and homelessness crises. So in January alone, the city got $125 million from one state affordable housing program that would support multiple developments here. And right now, the state would no longer be eligible for this program, among others. This really starts getting confusing because, as I said, the city is out of compliance now, so it's not eligible for funding, but no more housing money from this is available until May. Both the city and the state believe the city will become compliant by then and the city will be able to apply for those dollars. But then again, in October, when the rezoning deadline comes and goes, the city will fall out of compliance again, and then its access to the money will again be blocked. So even though they'll come back into compliance, they're still going to be subject to that one-year penalty as opposed to that three-year sort of longer leeway. Exactly, yes. What a mess. It sounds like a lot of rigmarole over what everyone believes are pretty easily correctable issues within the city's plan. Right. And so I talked with uh, Chris Elmendorf. He's a law professor at UC Davis who is closely tracking the state's efforts on housing plans. And he called what the state is doing to LA, quote, politically bunkers. So basically his argument is that by rejecting LA's plan for minor reasons, they're making it much harder to distinguish cities like LA that by all accounts are acting in good faith and other communities that have no intention of complying with the law and are essentially giving, you know, a middle finger to the state. Another crazy thing here is the penalty of cities losing access to affordable housing money, as well as some transportation planning grants. Like cities that tend to be out of compliance are 
those that usually don't want to build affordable housing. So their punishment is, yep, no affordable housing dollars for you. Let me be clear, though, this doesn't touch some of the biggest sources of affordable housing funding, which goes straight to developers. This is mostly for money that goes first to cities, but it's still huge. There's another slightly more interesting punishment. According to HCD's Megan Kirkby, a city that is out of compliance wouldn't be allowed to use inconsistency with zoning or general plan standards as a reason to block housing projects for very low to moderate income households. So like if a block isn't zoned for a bunch of multifamily, but your housing element is out of compliance, you can't deny an affordable housing project on zoning grounds. This is also known as the builder's remedy, but it's also a pretty rarely used sanction. You know, and while there could be other penalties down the line for cities like state lawsuits or fines that are not tied to housing money, those aren't immediate and they aren't really necessarily certain to happen either. Like, for example, do you remember how I said the state goes by region by region in assessing housing plans? Yep. So LA area cities are actually second in this process now. First in line were those in San Diego County and the city of Coronado, a very wealthy island enclave, has been out of compliance now for a while and they've even filed a lawsuit against the state over the whole process. Andrew Bowen of KPBS, the NPR station down there, recently did a story about Coronado quoting a city councilman who basically said, yeah, it might be a while until the state does something, so shrug emoji. And nothing's happened to them. So we should be very clear here that the city of LA is not alone. You know, when I was writing my story, there were very, very few skag cities that were compliant and a whole lot that weren't. So that means many places are facing the same rezoning deadlines and affordable housing concerns that LA is. And I think that's worth highlighting here. 190 of the 197 cities are still out of compliance. I think that shows something is seriously up here. That's a pretty low success rate. The difference, though, is that a lot of these cities are significantly smaller than L.A. So according to HCD, getting into compliance or rezoning wouldn't be the same type of monster. Megan at HCD told me that a lot of these jurisdictions are pretty close now to being in compliance and L.A. is, quote, definitely one of them. She was hopeful that L.A. would only be out of compliance for a short time after that October deadline, because in their view, rezoning shouldn't take longer than 12 months. And that three-year period for the compliant housing elements is pretty permissive. But L.A., as you've pointed out, Liam, doesn't see things that way. There's just so much politics and bureaucracy involved that even a year to them isn't enough. Right. And so L.A. officials, city officials already told me they plan to go to the legislature, try to get some relief from their requirements. What are you hearing about what's going on in Sacramento on this issue? So I'm hearing there is pretty broad agreement at the state level that something needs to be done to cut some slack to good actors like L.A. while maintaining the stick for the bad actors that don't really want to build more housing. The specifics are still being worked out, but the ultimate goal would be some sort of deadline extension. And the vehicle for that, like the fix for UC Berkeley, would be a budget trailer bill because those go into effect immediately as opposed to waiting until January 1st of the following year. The other thing that could happen is untying that affordable housing funding that we talked about from the compliance element so that cities, even if non-compliant, would still get those sorely needed dollars to build housing. But even so, there doesn't seem to be too much urgency from folks at the Capitol, at least from what I'm hearing. And it might be one of those things that legislators wait till the very last minute to fix. 
The other part of this is that if LA does get a carve out, then everyone is going to want one. Advocates are wary of not overcorrecting. Ultimately, those who worked really hard to give teeth to this whole housing element process aren't actually as upset as LA is about this whole thing. They see the newly introduced urgency as a good thing. We're already so deep in this housing crisis. Maybe strict deadlines are what people need. A lot of fuss going on here, and it sounds like there's going to be a lot of drama about this in the legislature, at least for this year. And the Bay Area cities are next on the list, so a lot of the fighting that we're hearing about right now in Southern California, we may expect to hear from those in Northern California this time next year. Oh, yeah. The Association of Bay Area Governments, a.k.a. BAG, is up next. (laughs) (laughs) I like that acronym better. (laughs) Okay, so Manuela, I'm going to go, I want to go on a bit of a rant here. Would this really be Give Me Shelter without that, Liam? Thank you. Thank you for that (laughs) setup. Um, You're welcome. All right, here we go. So I guess I'm not really sure why as a state we are continuing to do this. Well, I know why, but I'm not sure that all this stuff is getting us much closer to solving our housing problems. Like all this back and forth, all these people checking housing plans in the state housing department, the flurry of letters being exchanged between the cities and the state, what's going to be new laws and potential carve-outs is all for a zoning process that has never in a half century proven to work to ensure anyone anywhere close to enough housing gets built at these varying income levels. And now with, you know, with all these new laws, everyone is insisting this process is going to work so much better. But again, we're relying pretty much on the state having to know when a city says that the site of a Joanne fabric store is a great place for a 200-unit low-income apartment complex, whether that's in any way at all realistic. I mean, the state cannot possibly be expected to know when that Joanne Fabrics lease is up or whether the people nearby are really Joanne Fabrics aficionados who would never let their beloved store close. Or in other words, the state can't be possibly expected to know the development potential of every single parcel in California to fairly adjudicate this. So we're fighting these zoning battles in 539 separate communities. That's the number of cities and counties in California. All the activists from all sides have to engage in it because it's the law, but it seems very exhausting. And to what end? You know, we cannot exactly predict where development may occur for a million different reasons. So setting aside land is just one part of having new housing actually built. Summing up here, you know, there's tremendous time, tremendous sums of money, bureaucracy, and activity around an incredibly arcane and confusing planning process that has really never worked. And even if it does ultimately work slightly better now, seems to me very unlikely to actually move the needle in getting the state the housing and especially the affordable housing that's needed to make things better for people. I think that's a pretty cynical but real way to look at it. You're sort of reminding me of how the governor first campaigning said that he would build 3.5 million new homes and now we are at 2.5 million zoning. What do you think would be a better alternative? I mean, you could just pass a law declaring certain kinds of housing to be just be allowed in certain places. Like within a certain distance from mass transit, you could build mid-rise apartments, period. Could you though? Right. Well, I want to be clear here that while that sounds very much like major housing bills that failed in the legislature in recent years, like SB 50, it doesn't really have to be that. Like, what if in certain areas of the state, you know, low income housing complexes have to be allowed on any property within a specific radius? Again, I'm not prescribing an actual program here. What I'm talking about is a different strategy. Instead of taking all this time and effort and money to say, well, here's where we'd like to maybe plan for housing and all the back and forth this is entailing, you just say, well, here's where housing or a certain kind of housing should go. And then everyone cannot have to do what everyone is having to do now. 
Why don't you think that's happened? It sort of already has. I want to make that point. I mean, you look at what the state's done in the last few years with, you know, ADU or casita laws to allow them to be built just about everywhere. And there's been an explosion in growth of those units. But when we've come to these sort of bigger deal efforts like apartments or low-income housing, it's just not happened. And so everyone from the governor on down seems to have pushed everything about promoting more growth into this planning process, which we've been discussing for some time over this entire episode. And so here we are. I see your point, and I do agree that things would be simpler that way, but we saw how hard it was to get fourplexes through. In the year that I've spent reporting on these issues, I've learned that local control is sacrosanct in the state, and it doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. That said, yeah, the results seem to be really mixed. You have some cities that might be taking this amped up RENA process as an opportunity to push through some more ambitious plans, use the state as a scapegoat. They made us do it. But we have to wait and see whether these more ambitious zoning plans are actually translated to housing. What's not as clear to me is if these increased enforcement mechanisms will really squeeze out more housing of the cities that are dragging their feet, especially when there's just so many of them. As one source put it, you could keep putting more and more guns to their heads and they're just not going to get there. Okay, so let's talk to Kome about RENA, SCAG, and hopefully other things that don't require so many acronyms. We are here with Kome Ajise, the executive director of the Southern California Association of Governments. Kome, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So Liam and I talked at length at the top of this episode about the difficulties facing the Southern California region, particularly around this imminent rezoning deadline. But this process has been going on for quite some time, and there's been a lot of back and forth between you all and the state. Could you set the scene up for us? How would you characterize what's been going on over the last few years? At SCAG, we hadn't really been fully enmeshed in housing until very recently, and before the last two years, our role in housing was typically every eight years. We call this party, we call RENA, Regional Housing Needs Assessment. And we do it every eight years. And after we're done with the assignments, it goes away for the next eight years. This last cycle has been different in the sense that several changes in statute to the housing laws. And specifically, the changes were intended to address the existing need that was in a housing deficit. We had an added requirement to consider existing cost burden and overcrowding. And that's an assumption that you can plan for new housing, which is what RENA typically did before the six cycle. But as you think about new housing, how about housing folks that are already in need of housing right now because they're overcrowding and there is a cost burden that's showing up in the system. And so that required us to then reconsider how RENA was, uh, the calculation was going to be done for housing needs. And the number that came back from the state was larger than we had estimated. It was, I think, three or four times larger than the last cycle. It was difficult to figure out how we could assign those. Now, we did push back. The law allowed us a, an objection, what it's called, and we, and we filed an objection to the numbers from the state. So you had to look at some elements that you could compare with. So like immigrant population, so you might look at 
parts of the uh, of Miami and New York metropolitan areas. And so we find some comparability in those areas and we're able to use those in our calculation. Well, when the state did their calculation, they came back and said that we underestimated like the teenage population. And so they were very, very specific to a population cohort. We felt like that was outside of the bounds of the parameters for analysis and that was one of our pushback amongst a couple others. And so they came back and they did a reassessment and took about 3,000 units off uh, their original. <laughs> it's like, well, whoopsie. Yeah, that's a There you go, nice. <laughs> right. Yeah, a little trim. Right. That was a nice trim right there. And um, right. so we're still at 1.34 million, needless to say. That was the slight contention we had with the state. And once we filed it, the law doesn't give you any recourse. The state comes back and there's nothing else you could do. So we move forward with developing the methodology as required by law. So in the past, when you did RENA, you were only looking at assigning future need to where you had capacity. It was a very easy thing to do. And so typically you would find that a lot of the assignments were out in the Inland Empire disproportionately, not that all of it was, but disproportionately, the new need was out there. And of course, those were growing areas and they had the capacity to grow. And nobody thought much about it. It wasn't like you were doing anything egregiously wrong doing that. So I don't want to cast any aspersions to that. This time around, given the huge number we had, we felt there was a need to actually tie this assignment more closely to our regional planning. We were also in the middle of developing the 2020 Regional Transportation Plan, which is a four-year process. And so to make that consistent with the Regional Housing Needs Assessment was also very important to us. And so looking at the direction we had in regional planning process, the body then came up with an approach to assign housing based on proximity to existing infrastructure, especially high quality transit. That got you kind of away from the more sprawly places in the Inland Empire and more towards the more kind of denser development that already existed in LA and Orange counties. Yeah, that and it also allowed us to match our objective of reducing greenhouse gas emissions and VMT. So the more you have housing close to where you already have existing infrastructure that can take you off having to drive, not to say you can't drive, but give you that choice, I think the better for the region in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. The second major criterion was to assign close to where jobs are. Again, with the objective of having that shorter commute for people that would be located in these new housing assignments. And so that had the effect of pulling more of the assignment into more urbanized areas and closer to existing infrastructure. So we're actually optimizing the use of our infrastructure and we're also reducing the effect on the environment as a result. It sounds like, you know, obviously a lot of back and forth uh, with the state over the years uh, leading up to this with the process. But, you know, now we're at the point where individual cities are working through their rezoning plans. What are you hearing from those cities and from the state about how that process is going? Well, it is difficult. That's an understatement, by the way. All of our cities want to do the right thing. At least I would say most of them, if not all of them, want to do the right thing. There are obviously all kinds of different constraints that you can come up with. And many of them are legit constraints. One that we have found to be almost impossible to deal with is under the law, they were all required to have housing elements in place by October. We had this thing called COVID that affected Everybody. So I can't say it's a unique excuse, but specifically to our municipalities, many of them were decimated 
fiscally and staff-wise. The capacity was just not there to get things done. Now people are coming back. Some of cities are rebuilding. And so well, and cities, with- cities did get a lot of federal dollars too. It certainly what happened this time was nothing like what happened in 2008 with government job loss. True, but you have to also understand that federal dollars were intended for a recovery to sort of bolster the losses that they've had. But in terms of processing, which still requires you to have people on board or maybe consultants on board, that time that you needed to get the work done to be able to get a housing element done by October 2021 was the main downtime during COVID. And so 2020 and the early part of 2021 were lost times for a lot of our cities to have that capacity. And we knew that. Now, the law also allowed us a grace period. So all of our cities had a grace period to get the housing elements done by February 11th this year, last month. As of, I think, my last check, we have six out of 197 jurisdictions that have certified housing elements. And that tells you a lot because when you look at the six, and kudos to them for being able to pull it out and get it done, five cities and one county, you then have to look at the ones that didn't were able to get it done by October 2021, and even given the grace period of February 2022, why couldn't they get it done? I think it was just the constraint that I described. So when we see cities really trying their hardest, because a lot of our policymakers, a lot of the electeds understand the housing crisis and they understand their role in helping out, they're not going to be the ones building the units, but they know that if you don't plan for those units, then they're not going to be built. you got to create capacity, at least opportunities within each jurisdiction, each city and county to be able to, in fact, build those units. So that's what this process is about. You know, I think it's a relatively good process. It's got some constraints and quirks to it that may need to be revisited over time. But the one that we saw, going back to your question, this time around is just that time that we just did not have to be able to get the housing elements done. And it wouldn't be as bad because ultimately they're all going to get it done. The problem with them not getting it done, those time milestones that I just gave you, is that they also become disqualified to be able to get resources that's available at the state readily for them. So now you're creating this vicious cycle of the majority of the cities in Southern California not having and counties not having access to resources that can actually help them with housing productions. So are we really solving the problem by penalizing them, understanding that there are some very good reasons why most of them could not make it? Last thing I'll add is it wasn't just about the time to get it done. It was also that the state still had some new regulations that were coming online that we, all of our cities, had to comply with that didn't have a whole lot of precedence in how to do it. So there was a lot of learning on that and there was a lot of recycling on that. It was compounded by some of that. And that's in no way saying the state was at fault, but we felt like the state could give us some relief though in the process and and not penalize the cities for coming late, understanding that there are some really good reasons for why we're where we are today. So one of the penalties is that LA is going to have to rezone by October. So is that going to be possible? Other cities too? Yeah, I mean, think about it. This is a process that used to be allowed over a three-year period, where after you have your housing element done, then you begin your rezoning to match the units that are assigned to you. The law used to allow you three years. Now, because you didn't make this 
deadlines that I just talked about, the October date and then finally the February date, almost like dumping you on a really fast moving treadmill and they say survive. I would say it's almost impossible. Maybe some of our cities, given how far they come in their work, may be able to pull it up before October. But that's where we find ourselves, where our cities now have by October, because that's what the law says, by October, which is a year from when the housing element was due. Now they have to have their zoning done. And if you've been through any rezoning process, just on it, parcel by parcel, you know how long that takes sometimes in cycle time, let alone try to rezone across a whole jurisdictions. That's really asking the impossible with regards to getting our cities to comply with that. So we're basically creating another opportunity for default, you know, we could see coming. So what should be done instead? I think, again, two things very clearly for us. And this is why we wanted to get a hearing at the state level so that people understand truly what the constraints are, because it's very easy to be dismissive about, you know, yeah, you just don't want to do it and get those anecdotes of cities don't like to do housing and things like that. I, you know, they're baseless for all intents and purposes. I think a lot of cities, most of our cities want to do this, but we need to give them a fighting chance to be able to get it done right. So two things is one, don't penalize them. Let them still have access to the resources that are available so they can, in fact, address housing production as any other city in California. And then secondly, let's give them time to do the rezoning and do it right because you want it done right anyway. And the cycle time for going through rezoning, how much time they need, I don't know. I think that's part of why we felt like it would be good for cities to come forward and give their testimonies of what it takes to do what they're being asked to do between now and October. So there's a lot of outcry that this October deadline is too soon or too hard to meet. But at the same time, we've been dealing with this RENA process now for years. Some of what's changed is just added punishments when the deadlines aren't met. What about sort of the argument that cities and regions have had plenty of time to accommodate more housing? In other words, if everyone agrees this is urgent, why haven't cities just done rezonings that may well be necessary to try and fix the problem? The premise that the cities have had a long time to do rezoning, if you're looking from the outside, I think that's a really easy conclusion you could make. And if you weren't involved, that's an easy conclusion to make. And I'm not here to make excuses for our cities because they're able to hold their own in terms of what needs to get done. But if you're involved in this, the RENA process, you need to get the assignments done so that you can then, I mean, if you're getting 50,000 more units in your city, you can't do zoning ahead of that. You need to figure out where to put the 50,000 units. And there's this process of finding the right parcels. And there are regulations about how you do that and what's allowable and what's, this is part of the housing element approval process, is finding parcels that you want to assign these units to. goes through a rigorous process. And it's not like the city can just say, we're just going to put houses over here and over here. you got to prove to the state that that's actually a viable place to put housing. That's part of the back and forth you get. Even outside of the arena process, if, if this is a, a crisis that they've addressed is real, even outside of the arena process, why haven't they addressed it in the rezoning on their own? But that's what local control is about, right? They have the control if they want. If they want to increase density or, or rezone certain parcels, they're well within their authority to do that if they want to get more more housing built. I think as to Manuela's point, like with or without, whether there's some 
hammer or some state process that's forcing them to do it, right? I think you also have to assume that the city owns these lands that you're talking about rezoning. The rezoning process is an interplay okay. between private land ownership and the public sector. So if I have property and I come in and rezone it and the city goes through that, they do that every Tuesday. The rezonings that are occurring every week at planning commission process and the city council process. So that's going on on the natural. When you add 1.3 million requirement, when you're saying we need to build 1.3 million more units, you're basically telling the cities you need to create new areas to build on that you don't necessarily own or control. And so there has to be a public process for that. And that's what this is. So building your housing element is not that easy. You have to be able to say for real that, yes, this area, whether it's, you know, old retail, industrial, whatever, you have to be able to convince folks that, yeah, you can, in fact, put housing there and here's why. So having the city go through that intentional process in a public process, I think is it cannot be understated. It's a process. And so it requires time, which is why the state gives you up to two years to be able to do that. And then you come back and do the rezoning after you've identified those fossils, because now you've identified areas where you could build, but you haven't zoned it for residential yet. And so then you have to go through a process of rezoning each one of those. So what kind of residential? And remember, in RENA, you also assign income levels. So you're looking for what's going to work in that kind of mix. You know, there is a lot being asked of the cities in doing what they, they're required to do. What we're saying is let's give them a fighting chance to get that done. Now, if there are some folks that don't want to do it, it would be obvious. But the ones that are trying to do it are not even able to. So we talked a lot about this arena process, right? And this obviously some of the stuff that we've said are you know very technical. Uh, some of it is talking about things that may take a long time. Do you think that that this entire strategy, this entire kind of planning way of doing things that it, you know is that we've all discussed, this kind of dance between the state and organizations like yours and individual cities and counties? Do you think this effort will ever actually work to fix the housing problems that we at the state face and have faced for some time? I think it could work. There is some element of this that's meaningful and well-intentioned. I think what we've also done is we've created some constraints amongst that good intention that process is laid out. The process is saying, look, we are doing an estimation of what our need is going to be, and here's how to go and plan for that need. I mean, that's really essentially what the process is saying. However, you're also telling cities that do not directly build houses, that they're responsible for the whole thing. So you then need the cities to be able to create an incentive, uh, a, a condition that allows those units to ultimately be built. Because if we did the arena process perfectly, you know, let's say we assigned the 1.3 million and we rezoned everything, still does not guarantee that houses will be built. Particularly without subsidy for the lowest income. Abso- absolutely. This is the third thing we've basically have asked for the last five years in our advocacy in Sacramento is to give cities the capacity to be able to finance and support that subsidy that the public sector needs to have. The fourth thing in that process is process. If in fact we have a housing crisis and it's an affordability, housing affordability, workforce housing, all of those things that you need, if we need to address that crisis, we need to also address the process it takes to get houses built. And I think people have talked about CEQA reform. We've been able to get things done through CEQA that are important to us. And I think if this is, in fact, a crisis, that's another capacity I think our cities will need to be able to have that process streamlined such that developers can come in and, in fact, do 
the housing, whether it's for-profit or non-profit developers. So SCAG recently endorsed a ballot initiative that would strip away any state housing laws, including many aspects of RENA, and make land use basically the province of, of local governments. So backers had hoped to get it on this year's ballot and are now trying for 2024. Why is this a good thing? And how does this align with these goals of building more? That was a position that my board took. It was, I think, a reaction to the fact that we have all these rules coming from Sacramento that are not sustainable. I sort of reserve judgment about whether or not it's a good thing. I feel like it's more of a reaction to the sense that we're getting just all kinds of new rules uh, over the last three, four years. Many of them well-intentioned, some very good policy, but no capacity at the local level to execute. And I think that's part of what this is intended to do. We don't necessarily believe, at least I don't believe, in having this conflict between state and local. I think I've always maintained that the best government is local because it's closest to the people and gets stuff done. And those of us at the regional level and at the state level are best positioned to help locals, in fact, implement these things that need to get done. So if we want houses built, let's then give the cities more tools to get those houses built, as opposed to more rules, as my board president would say. Any sense of how that's going to go? And I, I want to leave that political process and stay out of it. But I feel like, I think, in fairness, you could see the reaction there was probably more of a, uh, of a reaction to rules coming from Sacramento. And the board vote was split. You know, it was an overwhelming majority. So you have to also read into that, um, that there is still some sense in the region that maybe not all of us support that while some of us do. And so why and why not? I think I'll leave that to 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 kind of divine. Well, I want to just not quite leave it just for us to divine. I'll ask one more thing about this. You said, you know, you're reserving judgment about this. What are some of the things about that ballot measure, that process that give you reservations? Well, we haven't had a chance to look at it. And so we don't know what all the potential pros and cons are. That's typically what we do in my line of work. And having not done that, it's hard for me to say, yeah, it's great or it's bad. But, you know, I understand why people feel like it's something to do and they voted for it. I also understand why some people have reservations about it. And so I think there will be time now that it's it's a little delayed to kind of figure out what it can or cannot do. And I imagine in the process, there might be some adjustments to it if, in fact, it goes forward to the ballot and like all things that go to the ballot, then the people decide. But we just have not had a fair chance to say we know enough about this to say, yeah, you know, these are the pros and cons. We haven't done that. So, Koma, you represent a pretty diverse region in many senses, but also in sort of attitudes towards more housing. Do you think that there is distinction between some cities in your region that want to accept more housing and others that have been more reluctant and that they're all sort of being placed in the same bag here? And and how do you think that needs to be addressed at the state level? Yeah, you know, I think it all stems from what capacity people think they have within their jurisdiction. There are a number of things that govern the sensitivity to whether we can take more housing or not. There is physical limitation to be had in some of the jurisdictions. But there's also potential for innovation and thinking differently about how housing can be had, even in the face of 
the perceived constraints that you have. Are we giving them the opportunity to be able to explore those, those incentives or those opportunities or those innovations? You know, we did a study in Walnut, it's been a few years, looking at planning retail as an opportunity for housing. It's a very instructive study. I mean, it probably needs to be redone. And But the state and the higher levels of government also need to be part of that to incentivize cities to be able to do that. Again, I keep coming back to the fact that cities, in fact, do not directly build houses, but they can be very powerful in engaging and enabling houses to be built if given the right tools. And so how do we transition a decline in retail to a mixed-use development that creates more units and actually brings back some vibrancy? I would imagine that most cities would like to uh, turn those things around and make them more vibrant because it could be an economic micro engine as well as a housing hub for them. And so if you, but you do, if you don't give the incentive, if you don't show the opportunities, then one's going to be resigned to say, I don't have any capacity to do that. So we can't quickly judge why people are a little resident, are reticent to housing. And for those who can take housing, we expect some of our jurisdictions to build beyond what the arena assignment is because they have the capacity to do that. The arena number is not necessarily, at least in the past as it used to be assigned, wasn't actually supposed to be like the ceiling. Now, giving 1.3 million, it feels like a ceiling. But in fact, there would be jurisdictions that have more capacity to go beyond the assignment that we give them. We know some of those are already planned for in their general planning process, build beyond what the arena number is. It kind of runs the gamut. We have, a, like you said, a very diverse environment. We've also asked for, and this is the other thing, about innovation, when we think about public policy, there are opportunities for us to think about what exactly are we trying to get? Oftentimes you wanna do a one size fits all because you want everybody to comply. But if you really wanna get a housing and you want houses to be built in the right place, is it possible to also allow the trading that used to be allowed in the past on the arena such that units are built in, but the jurisdictions are still responsible for those units that are built where there's more capacity to have them built. So there are all these opportunities that we can talk about that I think are right now creating constraints for cities to actually do what we want them to do. My takeaway regarding sort of the good faith and bad faith efforts to actually comply with RENA, you're saying that there's not really any bad faith efforts and that those are more so just ones that haven't gotten the proper support that they need from the state? I can't tell you what's in people's minds. Nobody's telling me they're absolutely in bad faith, not going to do housing. I have never heard that. But it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But what I'm saying is let's not quickly characterize the lack of enthusiasm to do housing as bad faith right off the bat. It just might be their perception of their capacity. And we need to then help expand that perception to say you, in fact, have capacity where you think you might not have capacity and you're able to do this. And here's how you could do it. I know what you mean. You know, you're talking about certain cities that have taken actions that look like they just don't want housing. And you may have heard somebody say that, but you also have to worry about why are they saying that if in fact they said that. And we feel like part of it is we just have not fully exploited the opportunities for innovation, provide more tools uh, for some of these jurisdictions to be able to, to do what they need to do. 
But to sort of to Manuela's point, I mean, there is this, and you'll forgive the pun that I'll get to in a second. I mean, a bit of a, has been a cat and mouse game over decades now with the state saying, hey, do this, here's a law. And the city is saying, well, here's a way, a loophole or a way around it. Cat and mouse, I mean, we there's sort of the famous incident recently in Northern California where a very wealthy enclave in Silicon Valley tried to declare itself a mountain lion habitat, right, to avoid being, allowing for duplexes or fourplexes. You know, just this week in Southern California, the state AG sent a note to the city of Pasadena saying that their efforts to allow for many more historic districts or landmark districts was another similar attempt to you know evade the ability to, to build duplexes and fourplexes or allow for that to happen. And so this is not new, right? These sorts of things have been going on for decades. And so you know, as someone who is you know, represents you know uh, local governments or local governments as part of their board or their process or that's what it is, how can you I guess assure people that when they see and read things about the situations that I've just described and many others that there is a real good faith process here, you know, among many cities to support the housing that, you know, all the experts say that we need to have. See, what we do at SCAG is to try and create opportunities for folks to get stuff done and then use those as exemplars. Because until you show people how to get things done, there might be this sense that we need to do something different to not be able to, because we just can't do it. And, and since the law says we have to do it, we, we need to find ways to get around it. Maybe that's what you're describing. But I continue to maintain, and maybe I'm an eternal optimist, I continue to maintain that for the most part, and I use that phrase very clearly, for the most part, all of our jurisdictions want to do the right thing. They understand that housing crisis is an existential issue for us, without question. I think we all do. The question is, what are we doing to solve for the crisis? Or what do we think we have capacity to do? When we assign these numbers, just to every jurisdiction pushed back. It was way more than they thought they could handle. Over time, they started to figure it out. And one of the things we did at SCAG was to create this tool it's called Helper. It's a really cool tool that allowed our jurisdictions to be able to figure out which parcels were actionable. And it's become really well-renowned and it's, you know, it's a tool that's gotten the most on our site uh, lately um, that we've recorded and actually been looked at internationally as well. But this is the kind of thing we do because now you created capacity for cities to be able to figure out how to better do what they wanted to do. So that was useful. And that's what we try to do is to create these examples of how things can get done. And then hopefully that people start to come on board as we diffuse that innovation across the region. But until you show people how things can be done, the natural reaction might be, we can't do it. And so we got to figure out a way to still meet the requirement of the law. Okay, so we're about to, to end here with the, the toughest question that we could possibly think of for you. Um, <laughs> no, it's been tough already. What do you mean the toughest question? <laughs> so here's, here's, here's this very difficult question. Do you think SCAG is the worst acronym in California? Oh, Dylan. Oh, Liam. Oh, my gosh. Oh, God. Um, no, I don't. And I know you probably avoid saying SCAG for some reason because you don't want to. Because it's a any... terrible acronym. It's yes, not. Right. It, it's not. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's our name. Uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know how else you're going to do it. If, 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 in fact, I mean, what would you rather call us? It's the Southern California Association of Governments. Right. Because that's what we are. And. Uh, you know, I love the name Skag. Um, I, 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 I wear I, I wear it well. I like do you have passion. coffee mugs and t-shirts and all of it? Or? I do. Uh, you know, I have lanyards. Um, uh, I'll show you. I have my mask. 
that says Skag on it. Um, I, I have Skag all over. I have a I have a lapel pin that says Skag on it. <laughs> I yeah, I wear it. And you should also look at the colors on Skag. I think it, it shows you how diverse we are and how varied the region is. But you know, seriously, I mean, Skag represents what I think is probably the most vibrant economic region in the country. And for good reason, people keep coming here because we have the best weather. I used to live in Northern California. I lived in Sacramento for a long time. Uh, we have the best weather, but we also have the best pool of talent you can find just about anywhere on the globe. What we cannot afford to do is with the two dozen plus four-year colleges that turn out talent every single year, what we can afford to do is to continue to lose them to other parts of the world because we can't house them. Um, and so that's one of the imperatives that we have at SCAG is to continue to work on this housing crisis until we solve it so that we can keep all that talent here. Just about everybody will be glad to say the word SCAG. All right. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Kume. All right. Well, thank you both. Thank you so much, as always, for listening to Gimme Shelter. If you like this podcast, please continue to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and your other favorite podcast sites. Again, this is really important so that new people, new Gimme Shelter aficionados can discover us. Our editor, Victor Figueroa. Victor, thanks so much. We really appreciate all the great work that you do. I am Liam with the LA Times, and you can find me on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And I'm Manuela Tobias from CalMatters, and my Twitter handle is at Manuela Tobias M. And just as a note, we will be taking a little more time before our next episode because Liam is getting married. Congratulations. Yay. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> we'll see you guys again at some point in the uh, more distant future than usual.